It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. When legendary Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski retired earlier this year, he left in his wake a legacy of success in championships, statistics, and the number of his players who graduated to the NBA. His longtime assistant, John Shire, inherited the program. He's not only the youngest coach in Division I, which puts him in the spotlight, but he's had his work cut out for him in his first few months, backfilling a raft of departing talent and molding Duke's long-standing program to his vision. So who is John Shire? Well, we're going to find out in a fun interview. But first... Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Duncan. Slow-steeped, ultra-smooth Duncan Cold Brew should be at the top of any Adrenaline Seekers checklist. We caught up with Coach Shire just before he headed out on the road for another recruiting trip. So, John Shire, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone, and congrats on your new baby and on your new job. Thank you so much. It's been a busy year, but uh, an exciting time. So thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with both you, uh, Sandy and Sandra. We have a lot of ground to cover, but let's start with your your own playing career. It all started in Illinois, where actually you're still one of the most famous players in the state in high school basketball history. And I was doing a little bit of research, and I saw the story about your determination to hit free throws. Um, you know the story I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was always determined to hit free throws, so there, hopefully there's more than one. But yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Ever since I was a young kid, anytime I would go into a gym, one, free throws, they're free for a reason. So I always, you know, I would get angry anytime I would miss one during a game. But anytime leaving a, leaving the gym, sometimes there would be, I would go with my dad, sometimes there would be with a coach, and I would pick a number I had to hit. And if it was making 40 before I left the gym in a row, and I hit 38, I was starting over until I got 40. It didn't matter how long it took. <laughs> you know, we... We were talking a little bit before this about perseverance and, you know, when it came to free throws or the work on the court, that never was an issue for me. So very proud of the free. I think I'm third or fourth all time at Duke and one of the leaders in Illinois history. And, uh, you know, free throws, a lot of it's about repetition and being in that moment. So I, I, I was able to always do a good job of that. That's awesome. Now, you're a, you're a freshman in high school. You're offered a scholarship by Marquette as a freshman, which really wasn't as common back then as it is now, right? So that had to be kind of an adrenaline-producing experience. How did that come down? It was. Well, it actually started uh, the summer going into my freshman year. Uh, I had not even taken one class yet, and uh, I went to Marquette's camp, and Tom Crean was there at the time. He was the head coach, and he said, uh, I want you to play two-on-two at my camp. And I walk in, and Dwayne Wade (laughs) <laughs> one of the current players at, at Marquette. And so I played two-on-two as a, not even entering high school yet uh, with another one of the players against Dwayne Wade. And he just beat the crap out of me. You know, I'm just, <laughs> I was competing, but I'm not even close to his level. And, you know, for whatever reason afterwards, Tom Crean offered me a scholarship right away. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I didn't back down, although I may not have beat him or scored against him. 
the competitiveness was always there. And so there's a, it was a huge moment in my life because I realized, you know, I was just thinking about playing varsity basketball and what I had to do there. All of a sudden, you know, you have an opportunity playing college. So it just changes your perspective in a big way. Wow. How tall were you back then? Yeah, I was actually about 6'4 going into high school. I had really good size. Wow. And I was lucky when I was young. My coach, you know, typically they make somebody like me who's taller be just a big man. And I had a coach who saw that I had potential for more. And so I was even, I was the biggest guy on the floor bringing the ball up, even when I was young, which really I'm so thankful for Scott Lidskin, my, my coach when I was younger, helping me with that. So you went into high school and you had a high school game in which you scored 52 points, including an amazing 21 points in 75 seconds. And so how did that feel? Because that sort of, I think, probably reinforced that, hey, maybe I could go do something with this after high school. Yeah, I, I- I'd be curious if either of you have had a similar experience in the sense that uh, I'm talking about, well, shoot, this is, I was 18 years old and now this is 16, almost 17 years later. And people still ask me about that game. And the crazy part is it was the most heartbreaking loss of my high school career. And, you know, we had won 35 games in a row and uh, we were number one in state that year. And we were playing in the Proviso West tournament and the holiday cr- tournament, which was, you know, in Illinois, the most historic tournament ever. And I wanted to win it. So we're playing in the second round and, uh, you know, scored 21 in the last minute 10, minute 15. But, you know, we lost the game. We cut it to two, three times. And so I was heartbroken after the game. I was crying my eyes out. And then, you know, the headline in the paper the next morning was, you know, scoring 21, 75 seconds. So I was proud of the effort, but really disappointed in the outcome. I'm sure you can relate to that in a lot of different areas. But for me, that's that's what I was feeling in that moment. Yeah, I think sometimes you're 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 so focused on the big picture that you just kind of lose sight of something remarkable that you've just done. And I'm sure that's how it was for you. You probably didn't even know you'd scored 21 points and, until you read the paper the next day. <laughs> that's right. I had no idea. I just knew it wasn't enough in that moment. So you didn't go to Marquette. You went to Duke. You were a two-time team captain. Uh, amazing stats. The only player in Duke history to record, what, 2,000 points, 500 rebounds, 400 assists, 253 pointers, and 200 steals uh, in your career. And more importantly, you won the national championship in 2010. Uh, so I want to hear from you about the ending of the title game against Butler. What was it like walking the ball up the court with a minute left in that game, a make or break moment where all of your life's passions, all of your hard work, is now hitting a crucible, a critical point. What was that like? I don't know if anybody's really asked me that question in that way. A lot of people like to talk about the last the last shot that Gordon Hayward took. But for me, bringing the ball up the floor, we were up by five with a little under two minutes to go. And we missed two shots. Butler scored twice. So all of a sudden, we're up by one, like you said. And it's under a minute to go. I'm walking the ball up the court. And literally, I feel 70,000 people stand to their feet around me and you know they're cheering mostly i think they're cheering for butler <laughs> we're, in, we're in indianapolis it, it's i took a split second and i was i was focusing the game but i was just like how cool is this you know and this is this is the moment you dream about being in i wasn't afraid i was i was i'll never forget it the rest of my life and we called the timeout. uh we had great execution down the stretch to to pull off the win but that moment that's why you make 40 free throws and you don't cheat it by making only 38. And in those moments, you want to do everything you can 
where you know that 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 the preparation you put in that I always have felt the preparation leads to leads to confidence. And uh, I felt that in that moment. Did you think that it was a good thing they called a timeout just because you had to get your mind back in the game after thinking this is such a cool moment or uh, was it all part of one? Yeah. Not because I was, uh, my, my uh, head was in the clouds thinking about what a cool <laughs> moment this is, but we had to get organized. You know, there's a ton of momentum going for them. Our two front court players had four fouls. So we were going through some adversity in that moment and trying to hang on and then there, and we got a great shot, actually. We missed it. And then our defense, the last two possessions to win the game, was textbook. And that comes from years of practicing, playing together, competing every day. So the timeout was, I think, really important. You know, the Adrenaline Zone is a podcast about people who take risk, right? And there's lots of risks around us every day in life. And sports actually have an aspect, a risk to them. And you had a promising NBA career, but you know, the basketball is a physical sport and you had an eye injury that really derailed things. So after having that dream of, of continuing on with your career, how did you recover physically and emotionally from that? Yeah, it knocked me back because one of the things I've always prided myself on as a player and I do now as a coach is showing up every day. You know, I never missed a practice in high school. I never missed a practice at Duke. I never missed a game in high school or Duke. And so my second game professionally you know, I had this injury that knocked me out. I was in that when I was supposed to be playing NBA Summer League with Miami Heat, I was in the hospital in Chicago getting heavy doses of steroids trying to get my eyesight back. And so uh, it really knocked me back. But I was I was very determined to still make it to the NBA. And, you know, it was an uphill climb. I was proud. Just about six weeks later, I went to training camp with the Los Angeles Clippers and uh, I was released after about three, three and a half weeks with them. But it was just for me, it was a signal of I'm not stopping. And I ended up playing three years professionally. Very proud of that. And then I felt it was ready. I always wanted to be a coach. I want to be a young head coach. And I felt it was time to come back to Duke uh, shortly after, you know, as there's getting to that point in my professional career, I didn't feel like the NBA was in sight for me. So after the injury, you know, you adjusted by wearing goggles to protect your eyes. But do you feel like that experience had some effect on how you approached the game or how you played the game? Yeah, I think it just put in perspective. Eyesight's one of those things you never think about. Like we don't wake up in the morning, and, you know, or at least I don't say I'm thankful for the vision that I have. You know, it's not something you go into a game and you're, you're thinking about it. And, you know, it was just a reminder for me, you don't know what happens. You just you just don't know. So to be in the moment, take advantage of every opportunity you can is really what I've drawn from that. And so like no one loves still to this day, I play, you know, just once in a while to get a workout in. I'll play with our coaches or managers and I love it. Like I, I cherish every moment I can be on the floor. It's the same thing as a coach. I don't take those things for granted at all. You know, so much of your professional career was actually playing overseas, right? And, and you know, we think of international sports, probably the leading one being soccer that everybody, you know, that's the, the, the common sport. But basketball is maybe a close second. Uh, it's played all over the world. How did it feel playing in front of audiences who didn't even speak the same language you did? Uh, and, and maybe with teammates the same way, right? <laughs> yeah, it was an experience. I just think, you know, for me, I grew so much as a man, as a person playing over there because you're making, I have relationships still to this day from, you know, friends from Spain, Greece, Israel, 
and it makes you more well-rounded. And, you know, basketball is a funny sport because it, you have the least amount of players in the NBA. They have a little bit more now, but you have, you know, really about 400 to 500 players that are currently in the NBA. There's more than 500 really good basketball players in the world. And that's why you see, you mentioned, Sandy, you know, in Europe, there's high-level basketball. There's guys over there that can play in the NBA, but it's, it's a small margin of error. And, you know, you look at, you know, baseball, football, some of these, you have thousands of players in the professional sports league over here. So I learned very quickly, you think you're better than what you are. And then I went over to play in Israel my first year and I'm, you know, I have to fight with these guys just to get playing time. Like there, there's some really good players that have been doing this longer than I have. And so for me, it gave me great perspective. I played another year in Spain, which I learned a lot. That's the Spanish league is a best league you can play in competitively over there. And I've brought some of the things I've learned there into what I've done as a coach and will continue to do that. So do they approach the game radically differently in these different countries? Or is there a a large overlap between how it's played? Yeah, it's a great question because the way their skills are developed and how they practice is very different. They're more skill-based and learning how to play the game. So they're further ahead than we are in that. But we have greater talent than they do. And so when you have greater talent, you can take for granted some of the the details or the the learning curve you need with, you know, you see some of the most talented players in the world, like at uh, Nikola Jokic or Giannis Antetokounmpo or Joel Embiid, they learn, they play different sports more. I think we're too individualized over here. We do that where we start playing one sport at an earlier age, or for them, they're playing multiple sports. So the footwork is a huge part of why they're so successful. So I learned a lot, just the style of play, it is different. And that combination for me, where there's, you know, still free flowing and you have to read and react, but also uh, the fundamentals that you can learn over there really uh, is what I want to incorporate and take a step further for us uh, at Duke. Duncan is made for everyone with the determination, the drive, and the guts to do something new or who wants to push their boundaries. It's the fuel for every mission, challenging pursuit, or adventure. Whether you're embarking on a new journey or whether you're wrapping up your adventure, you know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And if it's speed you're after, order ahead and it'll be ready when you get there. It's simple. In, out, and on your way. So let's get into coaching. Not many people get to coach at their alma mater. What made you want to get into coaching? Was it, hey, this is just the only way I can stay on the court? Or did you have a passion for that all along? I had a passion for it. I actually have, when I was young, I have this notebook when I was about 10 years old. And I made a playbook, uh, rosters, schedules. So this has always been in my heart. Honestly, I thought I would be after having a 10-year NBA career. It just happened that God had other plans for me at an earlier age. But, you know, for me, it's I love the game. And so coaching is the closest thing to playing. And, you know, I felt like when my eye injury happened, it was my opportunity to help others reach the goal that I just missed out on. And so it's been a pleasure for me. This year we had five players drafted in the NBA, and we hope that continues where we have a handful each year. And uh, I'm as excited as could be to be a head coach. I love being an assistant coach and uh, just ready to take the next step. So you coached under legendary Mike Chachevsky for, what, nine years before being named Duke's coach. So what are the key things you learned from Coach K 
especially about managing risk, because there's a lot, there's a lot to manage there in a different way than a player. It's much different. It's a different perspective. And the biggest thing I learned from him, Sandra, is just the power of preparation. You know, I mentioned that earlier about leading confidence, but look, we all hope we're the best at X and O's and motivation and all those different things. And he's right there at being the best of all those. But he was never going to lose because he was outworked or outprepared. He is a machine when it comes to his daily preparation after a game, before practice, whatever it may be. And because of that, whenever we would have a setback, and we've had a lot of setbacks throughout my time here, the ability to handle adversity is as good as anyone that I've seen. And it starts with looking at himself in the mirror. It doesn't start with looking out. It starts with looking in. And he's demanding. He's on our players. He's on our staff to perform, but not any more than he is on himself. And that's the thing that I've learned that I hope to continue going forward. John, you probably could have coached almost anywhere in the country. And and for all we know, you might have had people tugging at your cape trying to get you to leave Duke uh, all along, but you stayed there. What kept you at Duke? Uh, and what was the sort of hiring process like that that led to you becoming a head coach? I was getting a lot of interest to to coach at other places the last year or so. And, you know, the, the Duke job has been talked about for some time. Who's going to be the next coach to follow Coach K? And I never really thought it was going to be me. <laughs> I, my family would tell you that. My friends would tell you that. I've dismissed it. But sometimes the opportunity in the moment, if you're ready, you're in a position where things can happen. And, you know, people always ask me, you know, you have big shoes to fill or it's such a daunting task and all these things. You know, all right, we're in the adrenaline zone. This is why we do what we do. Like, I love to do this. And would I rather coach in the place that's in my heart where, where I love so much at Duke University and the program that I pour my blood, sweat and tears into? as opposed to just coaching somewhere else because it's safer? No way. And so for me, this is the biggest challenge. And with the biggest challenge comes the biggest opportunity. And that's why I'm really, uh, really excited to, you mentioned the hiring process, Andy. It was about a month long process and did a few Zoom calls with our athletic director at the time, Kevin White, our new athletic director, Nina King, and then our president, Vince Price. And at the end, you know, I felt like I did everything I could to put myself in a position. I felt, again, I'm sure you all have been there in your own in your own fields, but you know, I hit a home run. Whether that home run translated into winning or losing or getting the job or not getting the job, I felt at peace. And so when Nina King called me, said you're going to be the next man's basketball coach at Duke, it was one of the best calls and not the best call I've ever received. And the dog has caught the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because here you are at 34, the youngest coach in any power conference in one of the most coveted coaching jobs in all of sports, much less basketball. So now that you've caught the car, as Sandy put it, how, how are you going to put your own stamp on the program, the legendary program there, as a matter of fact? Yeah, well, I think it, it starts with having clarity in who I am, because we're going to be in some pressure situations and not like your pressure situations, by the way, it's a different level, but you have to follow your instincts and, you know, advice I've gotten from a lot of coaches, coach K himself actually, is they try to be like the coach that came before them. And that's because you admire that person. Like I admire coach K. I love what he's built. I love what he's done. 
But if I'm trying to be him in any way, then it's not authentic to myself and I'm not going to be successful. Our team won't be successful because of it. So I have great belief in what I know and what to do. We have an amazing staff here that I'll lean on heavily and just follow this, those instincts. So, you know, the game has changed a lot. You were a four-year player, if I'm not mistaken. Now you got a lot of one-year players who are so talented, so gifted that they move on right away. Does that add more pressure to the challenge or uh, is it just something you deal with in stride? Sandy, you mentioned it, but if you try to think about everything too much and you lose focus. And so for me, it's just being in the moment and really adapting. Like I, I realized very quickly in my first two months, I've had to make decisions or think about things that Coach K never had to in 47 years of coaching. That's how much it's changed. And so for me, you know, or I mentioned not trying to be Coach K. I can't be Coach K because Coach K never had to do this. And so being really adaptable and flexible uh, has been important for, for me, even in these first few months. And I think it's an exciting time. Do we have to figure out, you know, some direction and some organization as, uh, as college basketball and NCAA and all that? Yes. But overall, the, 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 the freedom that our players have now, the opportunity to make, make money off their uh, name, image, and likeness is really important. And it's something that we never even thought about when we were players. Now they deserve it. So I'm happy that we're moving in the right direction. We have a ways to go. You know, as you step into Coach K's shoes and deal with this whole different world, not everybody out there, you know, watching from the outside understands all these pressures. So how are you going to manage some of those expectations with a crowd of people externally that are maybe looking at how basketball used to be played and not necessarily understanding all these dynamics that you're discussing? I think it's a combination of over-communicating and explaining why we're doing what we're doing and the moment that we're in, the time that we're in. And also just do what you feel is best because no matter what, this is a job that there will be criticism, no matter what, it just will be. And there's gonna be, this is a job where we have to deal with failure. We're, we're not, you know, hopefully I'm here for coaching a long time. We're not gonna win every game. You know, that doesn't mean I'm not going in every game th thinking we're going to win. But there are setbacks. And so if you get too bogged down by what other people are thinking or what the perception is, I don't feel you can do your best focusing on the task at hand. So for me, I'm going to do I'm going to try to balance it where you, you know, you articulate whatever you can. But also let's go ahead and do what we feel is best. I just absolutely envy you. I remember when I went into my first commanding officer tour of a fighter squadron, I had this raft of notes this is what I'm going to do that I had accumulated. It wasn't like you just don't make it up when they tell you you're going to be the commanding officer of a fighter squadron. You, you've accumulated all this stuff over many years. I'm sure that you've got a ton of things that like, okay, I'm just itching to try this. I, you know, <laughs> I'm ready to rock. You know, this is me. It's my moment. I'm really excited for you on that. You're off to a really good start, too. You've had a really good year recruiting. Uh, you're heading back out on the road to do some more. And college basketball recruiting is incredibly competitive. You're looking at young people who are still growing and maturing. You said 18-year-olds, you know, and how they're going to fit in your program without any, any revealing any secrets, I guess. Uh, how do you go about addressing the risk of this unknown quantity that you're thinking of bringing into your very precious program? When I found out I was getting the job, and this is June 1 of last year, we were behind in the recruiting class, and we knew we were going to lose basically almost our entire team. 
And I think there were two approaches. One was to hit singles or get on base and offer a lot of players and make sure we have a team and we're in a position to move forward. And the second one was we're swinging for the fences. We're going for the guys that really fit Duke. And we end up offering less. We, we have seven incoming freshmen. We only offered eight players. Okay. So, you know, just to give you an example, most schools, one, they're not recruiting seven players. We you know we needed a bigger class, but they recruit two, three, four, five times as many guys. And for us, we really pinpointed who were the ones that fit Duke. And when we do that, we feel like if we do our job of, you know, having great attention to detail and building great relationships, that they should come. And I'm proud of this group we're bringing in. It says a lot about their belief and our staff and myself and Duke with what uh, they feel we can do moving forward. So we have a special group. We'll continue to recruit that way. Well, still understanding we may have to adapt as this goes on in the next couple of years because of how quickly things can change. And it has to be sort of a, a bittersweet moment when one of your freshmen uh, gets drafted by the NBA. For one thing, it helps you recruiting. For another, you're happy for the kid's success. But for a third, you just developed this guy <laughs> and now he's walking out the door. It's got to be crazy. Yeah, well, I, I miss all those guys. It's it's less bittersweet when you have a guy go number one, like Paulo did. That's that's uh, that's pretty good. You can't go any higher. But with all of them, all we ask, Sandy, is that they're all in when they're here. You know, if you're all in when you're here, that will happen. And that's the goal for us, too. We want that to happen for them. And uh, all five of our, our guys who were drafted this past year, they're about the team first. They worked hard every single day. And so to see the reward being that they're accomplishing a lifelong dream, it's actually less bittersweet. It's more just exciting for them. The bittersweet part is we needed to fill out a roster <laughs> next year. That's the only bittersweet thing. You're you're sitting at, I was at the NBA draft and I'm seeing our guys get drafted and walking up on stage. And I was like, we were pretty good last year. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's a good reminder, but uh, but that's the only thing. So, so how does that compare, you know, as a coach, seeing your players go off and achieve such success versus being a player yourself, you know, in that high school game, for example, with your incredible record? How does that compare internally? Yeah, it's two different feelings, actually, because I've been a part of two national championships at Duke, one as a player, one as a coach. And after winning as a coach, not that I couldn't believe how happy I was, but I was very close to the level of when you're a player, you know, for me, it was a little bit different. The first time we won, I felt like it was the making of three or four years because of all the ups and downs I went through as a player. I mean, it was, it was a long time coming. The second championship we won with a, a young group. It was basically a one year journey. And, you know, Tyus Jones was the most outstanding player and Tyus working with him the morning of on these shots coming off the ball screens because of the defense that Wisconsin played. And then to see him do that in the game, that's so cool. You know, it's just, it's a cool thing. And to see the work and preparation pay off where you feel like you were a part of someone's journey, you didn't have that feeling either like you did as a player. It's a, it's a special feeling. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons, or, you know, the rest of us nine to five hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart. 
or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow, steeped Dunkin' cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Dunkin' cold brew. So nearly every coach I've ever spoken with in any sport at any level, including myself when I coached my kid in eighth grade football, believes that it's not just about winning championships. It's about developing young people, right? How does that play in your world? You're getting a lot of really young people. They've had a lot of success that might have gotten to their head a little bit, but you're trying to turn these into young men who are, are good people as well as great basketball players. How do you approach that? It's bigger than basketball. And so for our guys, you, you, you're at such a pivotal age, 18, 19, 20 years old, where I know I think about for myself how much you you grow, but you grow because you, you have setbacks, you have failures on and off the court. And so, of course, you're trying to minimize those as a coach and teach them before where they make less mistakes than you did, but also where you they feel the care, they feel the love, they feel... They understand how to be successful when they leave Duke because on or off the court, it's not going to be easy and there's going to be challenges ahead. Do you get a sense from uh, parents that this is also what they're interested in in addition to having their their son go to an amazing basketball program or is it very? No, it's it's priority for a lot of our parents. It really is. And that's part of identifying, when we say identifying the right people, it's you know, having the talent to have to win a national championship. I mean, we recruit really talented players, but also ones that have great character and that care about academics. You have to have all three to come to Duke. And in order for a player to have all three or a person to have all three, their family has to care about it in some level too. And that's what we've come to find. With the players who stay for a year and and then head out to the NBA, I guess the academics sort of becomes a second priority. I don't know if I would say a second priority. It's it's a unique situation because like Paulo Boncaro, for example, Paulo, I mean, his starting salary is $10 million. And that's without uh, his shoe contract, which he'll sign at some point. And there's a lot of off the court endorsements as well. But it's a tough task. When I was here, a, fr- a close friend of mine, Mike Posner is a music producer. He was making music when he was in college. You know, there's Kids that have left school to start their own business, their own company. And so some of our guys are in that position. And, you know, we talked to them about, you know, finishing what they started. And, you know, is that specific class going to impact Paulo next year? Maybe not all the time, but at some point, you're going to be proud that you finished the right way. And so our guys have done that. Uh, there's been challenges with it, just like when I was playing the National Championship game the, the next day. You know, being in school, was that top of mind? I'm not sure it was, but I was, you know, you have to follow up with your uh, responsibility. There's a lot of pressure on the athletes uh, on Division One schools to balance the academics and the sport, especially at a place like Duke, where there is that, you know, light at the end of the tunnel where you can immediately have a career and maybe pick up school later. How do you manage that with your with your athletes? Well, you hit on a, a key point, which for us, is how to handle adversity, but you're doing it in the spotlight. And so you talk about growing, maturing, developing. Now in the world we live in with social media and uh, you know our games are on ESPN, you're 18 years old and you get criticized. Like that's a, that's a different feeling. It's not a high school game anymore. 
And so, you know, we talked a lot to our players about how to handle that and how not to be externally esteemed. You have to be internally esteemed. Yeah. Because they're going to love you one day and they're going to not like you the next. And, you know, Kobe Bryant had a great quote about being hated. He had to learn to embrace it. And they don't hate the good ones. They hate the, they hate the great ones. And so for our guys, it's, I feel bad for them in some ways, Sandra, because I'm talking about as a kid as well, like as a person, you know, where they're not able to grow through their mistakes privately. A lot of it's so public. And so that's that's a hard thing to navigate. No, I, I totally agree with that. That's not an age where you want all this external noise as you're trying to figure out who you are. That's hard. It's when it's good to have a bad memory, right? Like uh, a pitcher who just gave up a home run. <laughs> Move on. Exactly. So let's get down to the tactical level here. Uh, In-game risk. Last 30 seconds of a game. Kind of what we were talking about with Butler, except you're now a coach. What kind of decisions, risk decisions are you making as a coach? Can you give us an example where you had to make a really difficult decision sort of in the end game regarding the risk that, of, a, of a choice you had to make on the court? Yeah. You know, I was even in positions this year where I was effectively the head coach for a game. Coach K you know, was was ill for a game and a half where I coached in, you know, really lineup decisions. You know, it's you have to make decisions into the game, not based on I don't make them based just based on analytics or anything like that. It has to be on the the flow of the game and how our, how our guys are doing. A lot of decisions you make, Sandy, you know, we had a game this year where there's eight seconds left. It's a tie game. What do you draw up? And you, know, you talk about handling risk. Well, let's flip it what's the best probability for us to win? And so for me in that moment, it was putting the ball in Paul Bancaro's hands, who was the number one pick in the draft, and wanting him to attack downhill to get to the basket. And so, you know, he actually, he did a great job attacking downhill. He didn't score, and Mark Williams came and tipped it in. But we study, uh, we had two of our guys who are great, uh, Zach and Trevor Marcus, they, they run our analytics and video department here. And they went through end of half and end of game situations from the March Madness tournament from uh, in college basketball and from the NBA playoffs. And we're use those as teaching tools, one for our staff to make sure we're making decisions and thinking the right way, right? Because you're, you can't wait until you get in game where, all right, how does John feel about the situation or what are we going to do here? We have to know somewhat if we're, all right, if we're down one more example, I'll give you, everybody talks about, you know, if you're up three, you know, you have to foul in the game. And it's not so simple. You know, what's the time? What's the score? Who's in the game for them? Who's in the game for us? And so we study it. And so when we're in those situations, it's not like you're 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 going to go off your feeling instinct. But there's also some backing behind it statistically or experience wise in that regard. And just for our listeners, you're fouling in order to get them a one or two point opportunity rather than a three point opportunity. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so the thought is, all right, we're up three. We're going to foul you, you know, and not shooting, of course, but we're going to foul you and you go to the line. You only have two free throws. You're up three. So if we get the rebound, we theoretically should win. But I've been in moments where actually we got fouled one time down three and Trey Jones, four seconds left in North Carolina, makes the first. Misses the second off the side of the rim, goes and chases it down and hits the shot to send it into overtime. So there's a lot of things that can happen. And it goes back to, you know, Sandra, your comment at one point about, you know, there's going to be decisions you make. They'll be criticized. 
And that's why you can't make a decision just to be safe or just to not to lose. You have to play to win. And so every decision we make will be aggressive and it'll be what we think is the best thing for uh, to give us the best probability to win. So, you know, we've talked a ton about the importance of preparation and clearly that's job number one. But we've talked also a lot about your idea of competition and that you're an intense competitor. Are there any situations where that competitive streak may have led you astray? <laughs> it usually gets some of my high school buddies on here and they can tell you, about, you know, some of the pickup games where I would lose or video games when I would lose. And uh, I think there's an old controller that I broke with my friends I never replaced because we lost and or I lost. So uh, it's gotten the best of me at times. And, you know, I've always at a young age, my mom would always tell me when I was real young, I just hated to lose and I had to learn how to be a good sport about it. And if my friends are listening to this now, they're going to say, you're still not a good sport, uh, <laughs> but I think I am. <laughs> and with, with the passion comes joy. You know, like if you don't, if you don't hate to lose or, you know, if you're not disappointed after you lose, then you didn't put in what it takes or you don't have the joy. That, that's the way I look at it. And so for me, it's really helped me to get to where I am it wasn't just the talent or skill. I had to be really passionate and competitive to have an edge. So, John, you and I are both friends of retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marty Dempsey, who's Coach K's West Point classmate, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, have you drawn anything from that relationship and from the military in general? Oh, yeah, a ton. He, I, I've been so lucky to get to know him through the years because he has amazing expertise, wisdom. I actually, I'm not a, I'm not a reader. But I'm an audiobook guy, so I've been listening to his to his new book, which is great, by the way. And you know, one of his uh, main messages in there is you don't you don't make decisions by yourself, you don't get anywhere by yourself. You know, you have your your family. In his case, he's talking about his family and Dini making key decisions in his life. But he actually sent me the the first day I was officially the head coach. He sent me a quote where uh, it stuck with me, and it was a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And, you know, I'm sure you might have heard that before. But, but for me, I took that as you just you don't skip steps. You know, you have to be in the moment. And I shared that quote with our team the first day. And I didn't give them any credit for it. I said, this is my quote. All right. No, I, I dig <laughs> it. <laughs> I dig it for it. But he's he has great wisdom and is somebody that I'll I'll lean on throughout my time here at Duke. Well, I sure enjoyed working with him uh, as his vice chair, and I'll treasure that relationship forever. That's special. So we we talked about, again, preparation and competition, but let's go a little sideways. Do you have any special rituals that you that you have cultivated over the years before you step out on the court as either a player or a coach? It's changed, and I can't tell you for sure what my routine will be as a head coach because it's a little bit different. But as an assistant coach, I always try to do something just to get a workout in or something physical. I, I, I felt a lift, a walk, something to clear your head because the, the waiting is the worst. Just let, let's go. When the, the, the ball is tipped, you feel like you're in the moment, you know what, to, what you want to do, and you're not thinking about anything. But before the game, you know, your mind is just, it's racing. And so for me, being active, doing something is really, really helpful through the years. 
Well, John, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I think we could talk for hours about all the intricacies of, of not only the game, but also what it's like to step into such an amazing program as essentially the CEO of Duke Basketball. And we really look forward to seeing you. We hope you have a, a good season this year. And we're really, really happy that you decided to coach instead of be a courtside commentator. I think uh, it's going to be really fun to watch. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both so much for having me. We'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your time. We know you're super busy, but it has been really fun chit-chatting. Same on my end. Thank you. That was John Shire, Duke University's head basketball coach. I'm Sander Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Many thanks to our sponsor, Duncan. Duncan fuels the people who take on every challenge head first. And we know the right kind of fuel they need, an ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode and be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.